Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Robert Wesley Brand Show. A roundtable of wisdom where people from all across the planet, from all walks of life, and from all religious and sacred traditions convene for spiritual conversation. I know this well, that if one thousand, if one hundred, if ten men whom I could name, if ten honest men only, yea, if one honest man in this state of Massachusetts, ceasing to hold slaves, were actually to withdraw from this co-partnership, and be locked up in the county jail, therefore, it would be the abolition of slavery in America. For it matters not how small the beginning may seem to be. What is once well done is done forever. But we love better to talk about it. That, we say, is our mission. Reform keeps many scores of newspapers in its service, but not one man. If my esteemed neighbor, the state's ambassador, who will devote his days to the settlement of the question of human rights in the council chamber, instead of being threatened with the prisons of Carolina, were to sit down the prisoner of Massachusetts, that state which is so anxious to force the sin of slavery upon her sister, though at present she can discover only an act of inhospitality to be the ground of a quarrel with her, the legislature would not wholly waive the subject of the following winter. Under a government which imprisons unjustly, the true place for a just man is also a prison. The proper place today, the only place which Massachusetts has provided for her freer and less despondent spirits, is in her prisons, to be put out and locked out of the states by her own act, as they have already put themselves out by their principles. It is there that the fugitive slave and the Mexican prisoner on parole and the Indian come to plead the wrongs of his race should find them, on that separate but more free and honourable ground, where the state places those who are not with her but against her, the only house in a slave state in which a free man can abide with honour. If any think that their influence would be lost there, and their voices no longer afflict the ear of the state, that they would not be as an enemy within its walls, they do not know by how much truth is stronger than error, nor how much more eloquently and effectively he can combat injustice who has experienced a little in his own person. Cast your whole vote, not a strip of paper merely, but your whole influence. A minority is powerless while it conforms to the majority. It is not even a minority, then but it is irresistible when it clogs by its whole weight. If the alternative is to keep all just men in prison, or give up war and slavery, the state will not hesitate which to choose. If a thousand men were not to pay their tax-bills this year, that would not be a violent and bloody measure as it would be to pay them, and enable the state to commit violence and shed innocent blood. 
This is, in fact, the definition of a peaceable revolution, if any such is possible. If the tax-gatherer, or any other public officer, asks me, as one has done, but what shall I do? My answer is, if you really wish to do anything, resign your office. When the subject has refused allegiance, and the officer has resigned from office, then the revolution is accomplished. But even suppose blood should flow. Is there not a sort of blood shed when the conscience is wounded? Through this wound a man's real manhood and immortality flow out, and he bleeds to an everlasting death. I see this blood flowing now. Come on in from your world and listen. He's the same man, same message, same mission. He's channeling the cosmos all mystic and soul. He's ringing the power and sharing the wisdom that never, never gets old. I'm talking about Robert Wesley Branch. He don't mind taking a chance. Robert Wesley Branch, he's here with his crew. So be well, be encouraged, be inspired every day. Be well, be encouraged, be inspired every day. Robert Wesley Brent Show. Happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise Saturday morning to you, and welcome to our sacred space. I'm glad you're here with us today. Here in the eastern United States of America, in the late 1820s and early 1830s, there arose a group of thinkers, thinkers, who held as a core belief the inherent goodness of people. Doesn't that sound good? The inherent goodness of people and the inherent goodness of nature. And they came to see society and its institutions, specifically organized religion and political parties, as having a particularly corruptible influence on the purity of the individual American citizen. Now, this group of thinkers viewed their brothers and sisters in the human family as at their best when living self-reliant and independent lives, free from excessive government control and regulation and unjust laws. And the followers of this philosophy became known as transcendentalists, transcendentalists. And their movement grew up in and around the New England area, particularly in the state of Massachusetts. And transcendentalists leaned into a way of being in this world that emphasized the inner spiritual or mental essence of human beings. Our innate power 
of subjective intuition. Abolitionist writer Henry David Thoreau was considered a transcendentalist. And in 1849, Thoreau published an essay called Resistance to Civil Government. Resistance to Civil Government, which came to be known simply as civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. Many of us studied this essay in college. Civil disobedience. And we open today's show with a reading of a portion of Henry David Thoreau's essay, Civil Disobedience. We heard there a section of the text where Mr. Thoreau extols the virtues of honest men and the impact, quote, one honest man could have on society as a whole. And in this particular case, writing in 1849 as he was, Mr. Thoreau was talking about the abolition of slavery in this country. Mr. Henry David Thoreau, Civil Disobedience, 1849. So let us now fast forward from 1849, 131 years into the future. And let me tell you a story about another man. He was born on August 25th. 1980 in the San Francisco Bay area. And he moved to the state of Texas as a young boy. He stopped going to school regularly at age 11 after a close friend of his died. When he was 15, he stole a bicycle. (laughs) Some of you might be able to relate to that. He was later expelled from school for possession of marijuana and he was sent to an alternative school at 16. He stopped going to that alternative school. And sometime after that, he was expelled from the alternative school. And that was the last school he would ever attend. This young man eventually attempted a residential burglary and attacked an off duty police officer who attempted to detain him. This young man soon became a father to a daughter and he and his baby mama came to live in his parents' home in November of 1998. Bill Clinton was president of these United States of America. The film Enemy of the State starring Will Smith was raking in millions of dollars at theaters across the country. Good movie too. And singer Deborah Cox had a very popular song out called nobody's supposed to be here. Y'all remember that? How did you get here? Nobody's supposed to be here. It was number five on the list of the top 10 songs in the nation. And in 1998, I had been on the planet for 32 Years, I was an executive producer at Discovery Channel, living in Bethesda, Maryland. And on November 21st of that year, 1998, this young man that I had been talking about, he purchased a number of very large bags from a store called Academy. 
the Academy Store. And on November 23rd, he assaulted an off-duty policeman. And the following day, he was arrested for that assault. And on November 29th of that year, 1998, this young man, he was by now 18 years old. This 18-year-old young man had created his own record label and had his own rap group. And on that day, Sunday, November 29th, 1998, this 18-year-old young man recruited two other men to accompany him to a recording studio in San Antonio, Texas. The three men entered the recording studio and this young man walked up behind the 33-year-old owner of that studio who was also a recording engineer there. This young man walked up behind that 33-year-old studio owner grabbed him by the hair and slit his throat. The two recruits accompanying this young man then proceeded to stab the recording engineer 25 times, resulting in his death. Now, the ringleader, the 18-year-old man I've been talking about, then covered the 33-year-old victim with a black sheet in order to, in his words, quote, not have to look at him, end quote. And then this young man, along with his two accomplices, began loading vehicles with the equipment inside the studio, estimated to be worth between ten and $30,000. And after making several trips back and forth to their vehicles, loading their stolen property, this young man and his two accomplices were spotted by police officers who observed the three men engaging in what appeared to be suspicious activity. A few days later, on December 1st, police arrested one of the two recruits and charged him with capital murder. And a warrant was issued for the ringleader. 18-year-old man I've been talking about. The following day, on December 2nd, our 18-year-old confessed to police that he planned the crime and recruited two accomplices. And one year later, on January 18th, 2000, our now 19-year-old young man was convicted for the murder of the 33-year-old recording engineer and studio owner. And two days later on January 20th, 2000, our 19 year old young man was sentenced to death. This young man's name was Ray Jasper, Ray Jasper. And the man Ray Jasper murdered was named David Alejandro, David Alejandro. In addition to owning the recording studio and being a music engineer at the facility, David Alejandro was also a well-known musician. And he sang in a local band called The Max, The Max, which had been a regional favorite 
for some 18 years at that time. Ray Jasper's two recruits, his co-conspirators in the robbery and murder, one pled guilty in exchange for a life sentence, and the other was convicted at trial and also sentenced to life in prison. Eight years later, on September 5th, 2008, Ray Jasper filed an appeal in Texas Western District Court. And nearly three years after that, on February 2nd, 2011, he filed a habeas corpus lawsuit challenging the death penalty. Habeas corpus, as many of you know, it's a legal document and a legal tool and a court procedure that is used to bring a party who has been criminally convicted in a state court to bring that case into the federal court system. Well, a year later, on December 10th, 2012, in the U.S. Court of Appeals in New Orleans, Ray Jasper lost his bid to have his death sentence overturned. And on Wednesday, March 12th, 2014, as part of the producing team for a show I was working on at the time, I flew from my home in Maryland to Houston, Texas, and drove from there by car to the Allen B. Polunsky unit, the Allen B. Polunsky unit in Polk County in West Livingston, Texas, where that state houses its male death row inmates. And we were there to sit down with Ray Jasper for what would probably be the last interview he would ever give. And one week later, on Wednesday, March 19th, 2014, at the Texas State Penitentiary at Huntsville, Ray Jasper was executed by lethal injection. And among his last words, Ray Jasper quietly asked his family to, quote, Take care of each other, stay strong and faithful to God, end quote. He also thanked his supporters and told his daughter that he loved her, adding that she, quote, be strong, be positive, have a great life, end quote. Can you imagine a father knowing he's about to die, telling his daughter to have a great life? Witnesses to the execution reported that Mr. Jasper then asked that the, quote, Lord God Almighty in heaven, Jesus Christ, see my spirit, end quote, see my spirit. Three days later on March 22nd, 2014, we did a show called I Will Not Die While I Am Living, show 185. I will not die while I am living. And on that show, I talked in some detail about my visit to Ray Jasper on death row. Take a listen. I do want to share with you that 10 days ago, I went to Texas. I don't go to Texas lightly as a, as a, as a brother. 
I am very conscious of my behavior in Texas. You know, when you're in Texas, you just better be conscious of your brother, really, if you're anybody. I think there's a sign that I saw that said, if you kill somebody in Texas, we will kill you. Now, that is the truth. <laughs> you kill somebody in Texas, we will kill you. Hey. And for sure. And Jan LeVanzant and I and crew traveled to Houston, Texas, and then by car to neighboring Livingston, Texas, to meet with a brother on death row. His name is Ray Jasper. And... Back in the day, he committed a crime that landed him on death row for the last 15 years. And we met with him on Wednesday, 10 days ago. And three days ago, he was executed exactly one week after we left. And I can't even begin to tell you, I'm still processing what that experience has done in my soul. There were only three of us allowed to go into the prison. Let me just say that I've been in prisons before. I've shot in prisons, television shows a number of times. I have a very good friend of mine who is in prison and is never coming home, and I've visited him many times. So I've gone through the procedure, for those of you who have never been in a prison, of surrendering all my values, valuables, being pat down, going through that process, and being locked up with the inmates, going through chamber after chamber after chamber to get into the belly of the prison where you literally are a prisoner yourself for the time that you're in there, and you feel it. Just going to visit somebody, you feel like you're a prisoner because of the process of entry. <clears throat> so I've been there. Never, however, have I been on death row. That's a whole other animal. And there we were, Ian LeVanzant and I and the camera guy, who also, because we could only let three people in, was our audio guy. And anybody who is familiar with production knows that, you know, usually your camera guy is not your audio, not your sound guy. But in this case, he was because only three of us could go in there. And when we walked in, there are these little, you've seen them on television many times, these little stalls as big as a phone booth that you would see back in the day on the corner. That's how big these were or how small they were, I should say. And we walked in and he was standing in his number 27 waiting for us. They had already brought him in, and he was just standing there waiting. So we tucked the Yanla around the corner so he couldn't see her until we were ready to start. We had one hour. Then the gentleman, Mr. Robert, was counting down. Literally, he set his watch, and he was going to stop me at an hour. He was counting me down from 15 minutes, 10 minutes, 5 minutes. So that hour was a pure hour to talk to this gentleman. So we're setting up, camera guy setting up, and I asked Mr. Robert, who was sort of our warden, if you will, while we were there for the media, there was another film crew a few stalls down from us in number 23 interviewing another death row inmate. We were in number 27. And I asked Mr. Robert if I could speak to him to greet him so it wouldn't just be, you know, we walk up with cameras and then Ayala starts talking to him. He said yes. So I went and picked up the phone. He was behind the glass. I picked up the phone and introduced myself and told him I was one of the producers and I would be working with Ayala through this hour, passing her notes and sharing thoughts with her as she engaged in the conversation with him. And he said, okay. Very soft-spoken young man. And we did the interview. And... When the interview was over, we were packing up. Ayanla, we tucked her back around the corner so that, because we had to all leave together. We were in this room, so the other camera crew finished first, and they waited for us. They watched us finish our interview, because you, you can't just come and go as you please. We all came into there together. We all had to leave together. So we're packing up and about to leave, and he taps on the glass and motions for the cameraman to get me. And I went over to him, to Ray, and I picked up the phone again, and I'm looking into his eyes. He's looking into mine, and he says, when is this going to air? And I said, probably April. And when I said that, I knew that unless there was a stay of execution, that this brother wouldn't be here in April. He wouldn't even be here seven days later. And I said, April. And he smiled, big smile. And I said, what was this experience like for you? What was this hour like for you? And he said, it was a blessing. And he smiled again. 
And then I said, thank you. And we hung up the phone and we all left. Wednesday of this week, he was executed. And so this brother leaves behind not only a loving family who is grieving his loss and mourning his loss, he also leaves behind a victim and their family who is grieving the loss of their loved one as well. So I'm mindful of that. I am mindful of that. We went there for the purpose of his soul, not for the crime and punishment of this man. That was not our purpose. It was there for his soul and to help him prepare his soul for a transition. And that's what that meeting was about. That said, it is very eerie to look into the eyes of someone that you know is not long for this world. Very eerie. Very eerie to talk to somebody about the fact that they are no long are not long for this world. Not unlike talking to someone who has a terminal illness, the distinction being that an illness is not somebody putting a needle in your arm and injecting a lethal combination of drugs. And he made it very clear that I do not go into this willingly. I am being executed. It was deep on so many different levels. In January of 2014, just a few months before Brother Ray Jasper was executed, by the state of Texas, the now defunct website, gawker.com, gawker, G-A-W-K-E-R.com. They created an online feature called Letters from Death Row. Editors sent out to all of the U.S. death row inmates who had execution dates scheduled for that year, 2014. And Ray Jasper replied to their invitation writing a letter that Gawker.com published on their site. In fact, before he was executed, Brother Ray Jasper wrote two letters to Gawker.com. And in those letters, Brother Ray Jasper references Mahatma Gandhi, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, Jesus the Christ, the Apostle Paul, spiritual leader Osho, and writer Henry David Thoreau, who again we heard from earlier at the top of the program. So, brothers and sisters, today we are going to use Brother Ray Jasper's two letters as a way into continuing our conversation from last week about the prison industrial complex and more specifically about the preschool to prison pipeline. Brother Shakuri Shah is back with us again this week to dig even deeper into his story of being incarcerated for 23 years. Brother Shakuri was released from prison just 18 months ago. We'll talk to him. That's ahead on this program. We're also going to explore director Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th, which examines the history and modern day impact of the 13th amendment to the U S constitution. So there there's lots to do here today. There's lots of soul work to do in this space today in the two hours that we have with you this morning. So let's take attendance and get this classroom started. Keeping it conscious with me today in today's conversation from New York, New York, big city of dreams. Everything in New York ain't always what it seems. My sister, television executive producer and business development expert and a mentor to many, many, many people. Ms. Michelle Wilson is here with us today. Welcome to you. 
Hello, hello, hello. I am here. Here. I got my <laughs> hand raised up. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you, Robert, for that very sensitive and um, and eye-opening open. Thank you. And we do have a lot to talk about today. And, and from <laughs> Tallahassee, Florida, where he oversees civil rights investigations for that state. My brother, singer-songwriter, and the encourager of your soul, Mr. Dante Bonner, is here with us today. Welcome to you. Morning, 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 everyone. How is everyone doing? Michelle, I love that quote, ruffling uh, the feathers, because uh, I was listening to what Robert was saying. I said, you know, this is such a sensitive topic mm-hmm. that if you look at even the the state of which our society, our country is in right now, we're dealing with the election cycle. And we dealt with the word cycle, I think, previously of this something that was going on and on. And I was reading an article talking about president's elections and racism and just how every four years, every eight years or so, the underbelly of, of the, the sensitive area of this country that we don't like to talk about is the undercurrent of racism mm-hmm. that pops its head up. And it's uncomfortable because it's politically incorrect. I mean, when you, when you say you're a racist, that is like, whoa, you have crossed the line, and that is not who I am. You, you, you know, those are fighting words that, you know, you want to get down and rumble with someone. But the role very, made a very clear, conscious point about as far as being an honest man. And I'm glad we're going to ruffle the feathers in terms of this is a sensitive area that we're going to have to unpack our souls and our lives and look and take a hard look at some of our biases, our prejudices that we may be aware of or not aware of or ashamed to admit that has made us to make certain choices and decisions that lead to this particular pathway from the prison, uh, to, I mean, from preschool to the prison pipeline system. So we, we're about to get on and pop in there, as well, Robert said. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And from Washington, D.C., my sister and friend for over 25 years, jazz singer and songwriter and musical producer, the emissary of love. Miss Mai Maisha is here with us. Welcome to you. Thank you, Robert. Welcome to everybody. Just want to send out a, a sense of one planetary love for, for everyone to feel during these times. And I hope that you enjoy our show today. To keep a focused discussion within our time here today, we're talking about the preschool to prison pipeline. So imagine, brothers and sisters, a pipeline. All right, pipelines come as small as your kitchen sink faucets and as large as oil pipelines, which you could stand up in. (laughs) You could literally stand up in an oil pipeline. You really can. Okay, it's that Uh big. Okay, so let's think of and imagine and visualize that kind of pipeline. And on one end is preschool and on the other end is prison. So what we're talking about are the factors, the circumstances, the challenges, the institutions, the laws that lead one into that pipeline that swiftly sends you to the end resulting in your a prison sentence. That's what we're talking about. That's the focus here today. Everything that impacts one getting into that pipeline. And if you just look at Brother Ray's story, just think about this over this quick break that I'm going to take. Think about the things that would lead one into that pipeline. And once you're in it, the things that would get you out of that pipeline, that's what we're talking about today. So there are lots of issues around that, but the core focus is the pipeline, what gets you in it and what gets you out of it. So just quickly think about that 
Think about that. Visualize that as I take this quick break and then we're going to come back and jump right into all of this. We'll be right back. And now for my next number, I'd like to return to the classics. This is the Robert Wesley Branch Show. Inspiration, wisdom, encouragement, and empowerment. We'll be right back. hot and spicy breakfast sandwich it's like you it's kind of hot but it's not too hot bingo try duncan's new hot and spicy breakfast sandwich with jalapeno and habanero peppers taste what's hot today hey Susie, why don't you use this it's got a calculator thanks dad this is the neighborhood you get elm street and you get main street thank you and that's just the first quarter so you want to slide in your office? On monkey bars, either one. More small businesses choose Verizon Wireless than any other wireless carrier. Where's Susie? Is she expecting you? Because they know the small business with the best technology rules. Welcome back to the Robert Wesley Branch Show. Inspiration, wisdom, encouragement, and empowerment. Gawker.com, the editors sent out 
this invitation to death row inmates in 2014, they asked the inmates six questions. And in Brother Ray Jasper's first letter in January of 2014, three months before he was executed, he responded. And I want to give you a little highlight of some of the things that he said in his letter. The first question was, what do you think the chances are of your execution occurring as scheduled? A little, here's a little bit of, I've highlighted some things that he said. The controversial issue in my case has been narrowed down to racial discrimination concerning the state of Texas, purposely striking black people from the jury panel. Racial discrimination on trial juries has a long standing history in Texas. We're talking about the preschool to prison pipeline. I want you to think about the things that lead one into a pipeline. He talks about the long-standing practice of striking black people from the jury pool. We always hear about how we are judged by a jury of our peers. Think about that. The second question they asked was, can you describe daily life on death row? Here's what Brother Ray wrote. Daily life on death row is like living in a black and white TV while the rest of the world is in full color, high definition, plasma TV. I've done my best to live above the circumstances by studying self-help and spiritual books. Gandhi once said that prison is not a punishment for an enlightened person. It only gives them more time to deepen their divinity. I agree. I think who you are matters more than where you are. Mm. I think who you are matters more than where you are. The third question was, can you talk a bit about your own past and upbringing? And Brother Ray writes, I grew up, like most young blacks, at a disadvantage, susceptible to the street life, out of the environment, and a lack of education. Lack of education is definitely a passport to the pipeline. Those are my words, not Brother Ray's. He says, and a lack of education. For most, this is Brother Ray. For most young blacks, we rebel out of subtle racism and being targeted by the police. For young blacks, cops are the enemies. I've been falsely arrested and beaten by the police many times before the age of 18. It's like, how can society expect young blacks to be compliant with the same law that poses a threat to their life. The fourth question they asked was, has your time in jail changed your political or religious beliefs? Here's a little bit of how he answered that, Brother Ray. He said, my time in jail introduced me to politics. I was too young and uneducated to understand politics before I got locked up. Now I see everyone has their own agenda and ideology of how society should function. And those in political offices enforce their own agenda upon others. I think politics is a shark's pool. There's not much empathy involved. The fifth question was, do you have any thoughts on how the media and the public view the death penalty? Here's a teeny bit of what Brother Ray said. He said the average person in Texas cannot explain the difference between murder and capital murder. Now, I wonder how many people that we know can tell you the difference between murder and capital murder. Question number six was, and this was the final question in the first letter. What else would you like to say to the public about your life, your situation, and what you think it means for our country? And this is what he said. 
My life is a testament of what it is to be young and black in America. Black people are incarcerated at a higher rate than any other race because we are ignorant to the laws that govern society. As Nelson Mandela said, education is the most powerful weapon on which you can use to change the world. I gave up in school after a friend died when I was 11 years old. I didn't officially drop out until 16. By 18, I was facing the death penalty. I had no idea what capital murder was, by definition or the law of parties. The Bible says that understanding makes a person depart from wrongdoing. People must be taught. Even if it's not in school, we are all interdependent and we can educate each other. Adults need to have the courage to talk to teenagers and teach them how to make a smoother transition into adulthood. When you're young, it's hard to see the road up ahead, and many teens lack a long-term vision for their life. They must be taught in the school of life by adults who cross their path. And he has a note. That's the end of his letter, but he has a little note here at the end, and it says, I apologize for all the mistakes, but I'm stuck in the 80s with an E-typewriter, not a laptop, peacefully, Ray. That was his first letter. Thoughts on anything that you've heard here so far? One of my thoughts that I think from all of it and is often, and, you know, because from our last show, one of the most important things for me was the cradle portion of our conversation because I think that that is where we begin to seed our children. At least that's where I was seated in my life, and I recognize that my diversion and or um, ability to not to to jump over hurdles started in the beginning in the in in the beginning in the in the primary portion of my life and so one of the things that i find interesting in that is that oftentimes it's taking our young men to be in prison and it's almost as though there's a time of stopping it means that they need a time to just Stop and learn. And I think you said it in the first phrase where he said it gave him a moment to just pause and learn, which says to me that maybe that's what we need to start bringing to our home lives and into the arena of feeding good things and, and positive, proactive thoughts into our children. We need to give them time, a pause in their lives, be it with the family, be it at the dinner table. You know, remember where there was always a time where, you know, you sat down for dinner. You weren't doing anything else. There was no games. There was nothing. You sat down, and that was that pause where you got to instruct each other, laugh with each other, grow with each other, endure each other, fight with each other. You, you, you got a learning of how to work within the society of your family right there when you were taking a pause. Does that make sense? It does. And when I hear you talk about that, I think of back to Henry David Thoreau, because one of the things that he says, or that he argues in civil disobedience, he exhorts people, and you can hear it in that opening clip, he exhorts people not to just wait passively for an opportunity to vote for justice, because voting for justice is, as he argued, as ineffective as wishing for justice. What you need to do... Okay, what you need to do is to actually be just. That's what he's arguing. Be just. Okay, be just. All right? 
You don't have to vote for justice. Be just. And he says this is not to say that you have an obligation to devote your life to fighting for justice, but you do have an obligation not to commit injustice and not to give injustice your practical support. That's what I hear you saying. That's right. Mm-hmm. I think I think also, too, the teaching aspect of it is it is the most vital aspect from the cradle from what Michelle was talking about, because you're taught not just in a classroom, you're taught in the confines of your home, and you're, you're taught by things that you see on the street. So you are absorbing all those different things that is developing your sense of right and wrong, your sense of morality, your sense of direction. Just like we talk about teaching the good things, you know, say please and thank you and teach you to share. You also, on the flip side, you don't let nobody beat you down. You don't let nobody cross you. You know, otherwise you take matters of your own. So you get these trainings on how to become. And so when you become, when you're all in the world and you're exposed to a particular situation, you are reacting based upon what your core foundation or belief is, whether it's right or wrong. And at that particular time, that is what it becomes exposed to. Yeah, and when you talk about being taught at home, and this is somewhat, some listeners may perceive this as politically incorrect, but we're going to do exactly what Michelle said. We're going to ruffle some feathers. You're only, and with, with all due love and respect to our parents and to everyone's parents, you are only going to receive the consciousness of your parents. Okay, whatever consciousness they have, that's what they're going to give you, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, so as a child, you're only going to get the level of consciousness that your parents have. That's all they can give you. Okay, so at some point, you got to take that. Not you got to take that. At some point, the life cycle is such that you take what you've been given and you build on that. But we're not there yet in the conversation. We're talking about the cradle. So. Moving up to that point, let me just finish my thought, please. Let me finish my thought, please. Moving up to that point, as you are given what your parents gave you and you keep moving along your cycle, you are, as a child, making choices. You're making them within the confines of uh, your parents' uh, supervision. Brother Ray stole that bike at age 15. He was still living at home with his parents, but he wasn't going to school. He stopped going to school at age 11. Now, I don't know about y'all, but in my house, that just was not an option. I don't know how you, but let me, let me say, I don't, I'm not saying I don't know how. In my household, it was not an option. I know what you're saying. Okay, you know what I'm saying, Michelle? It, right. it was not an option yeah, not yeah, to go to school. Right. And that's okay. the reason I, I, would, I would even say before that, that there is a consciousness that and I, this is my belief, and people can be ruffled by it or not, but once you bring a child in the world, it is your responsibility. It is your duty. It is the world to the world for you to improve your consciousness. I totally agree. In order to give that 100%. a better direction. 100%. So it's not just about, you know, it shouldn't just, because otherwise, as many politicians and many of our civil leaders have talked about, otherwise... You don't add anything. What you do is each generation is less and less and less. So it is important to improve your consciousness once you bring that child in. Not even once. I'm sorry. When you find out you're pregnant, start improving your consciousness. Totally agree. You know? And that's the one of both the male and female, because I don't want to make that just the female's responsibility. But you've got to right. start there. Michelle, I so agree with you. But we have to realize that in today's world, 
a lot of children are not having conversations with parents. They're mm-hmm. not even having any clue about what their parents' consciousness is. They know the consciousness of the video game. Exactly. And they sit there and play those all day long. Exactly. They learn yep. how to kill. They learn how to have no feelings about death or killing mm-hmm. another person. Mm-hmm. What's, yep. what's going to happen with that? Because that is so prevalent in today's world with today's That's children. Right. And all right. the way from little children through adults, adulthood. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. see 18, 19-year-old, 20-year-old playing these ugly, vicious games and getting so much enjoyment from them and not having any opportunity to talk to parents and and know what their parents' consciousness is. The consciousness they're receiving is a consciousness of the video game. That's right. Well, to to speak to your point, I conducted an interview this week, and one of the things that the the woman I was interviewing was the fact on how she guided her children from the beginning. She's basically created the environment that which she wanted. She said there was there was no video game. She said they're now yeah. thirteen, they just met got got the video game. Even though their friends had when they came in her house, this mm-hmm. is what was expected. She did it from the very beginning. She did not wait until they were five, six, seven years old. She was doing it consciously. There was a continuous action for so when they started developing consciousness, that's all that's what they were exposed to. They knew nothing of because that was the environment that she created for that. So when you mm-hmm. don't have a controlled environment, as we were saying earlier, a child is only going to do what they know. And if they already right. know this construct as far as mommy and daddy, we're always talking about consciousness. Mommy and daddy or grandmama or auntie, you know, whatever the situation is, we're always talking about this. And so that's what they're being fed. And even if they're going outside, when they come back in construct, they're still being said something, that's what they're going to, you know, so, but when you wait until they already developed certain things, you don't know where they've gotten it from. You know, when they got it from their friends, from their teacher, or from whatever the else like So there has to be an activeness in, from the very foundation, as, as Michelle said, from pregnancy, and not wait until, oh, they're just little kids, oh, they don't, I think we diminish the responsibility or the idea on how much they can really learn at such a young age until it's too late. Well, what do we mean when we say, when we talk about consciousness? When, when we talk about consciousness, what I'm saying here is exactly what Brother Ray talked about in his letter. If you're raising a child, I do not have children, so I'm speaking out of school here. So I would invite the parents among us to school me as I share some thoughts here. It would seem to me from where I sit that if you're raising a child here today, that what Brother Ray is saying is correct. And that is that when I am, and this is what I mean when I say consciousness in this context of this conversation, if you're raising a child, particularly a young black man, it is incumbent upon the parents to understand the laws of the land. (laughs) You've got to understand the laws that are in place that govern the movement of your children outside of your supervision every day. And brother Ray talks about those. You hear what I'm saying? You got to understand that. So, so part of the consciousness is teaching your children that listen, the 13th amendment to the constitution provides for legal slavery. If you become a criminal of the state, you got to understand that son. And this is how the 13th Amendment, it's going to apply to you. You can be a slave legally. Let me read the 13th Amendment. This is what it says. Slavery abolished. This was ratified in 1865. 
Here's the 13th Amendment. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So it is legal to enslave a human being in the United States of America if they are convicted of a crime. So the consciousness that I'm speaking of is for fathers and mothers to make sure that their children are very clear about that, are very clear about that when they leave that house. You are free. You live in a free country, but that freedom can legally be taken away from you the moment you commit a crime and are convicted of committing that crime. You are then able and probably will become a slave in the penal system of this country. That's the consciousness I'm speaking of. Parents need to have that consciousness if you're raising children in the 21st century. Absolutely. It is about the education of our children. And that's really, you know, what it is. It's about the education of our parents (laughs) first. Right. And then the children. The children, right. So that they are under, so that they understand consequence. And understand, and then also a larger thing, and and to your point, Dante, children understand things very, very early, but so that they understand that this is also a part of the system, because let's be real, when you've got a $35 billion industry and you've got your constitution that says if you're enslaved, we, if you are committed of a crime, we can enslave you. And then that feeds into a $35 billion industry. Well, let's paint the whole picture. Okay, you know, we'll, we'll, That's what children need to understand. They, they do need to understand that. And we'll get to that. That's a, that's a excellent point. When Brother Ray writes here, I gave up in school after a friend died when I was 11 years old. Well, how does that happen? The first day that I did not go to school when I was 11, which would have put me in what, the fifth grade, the sixth grade? The first day that I did not come to school, A, my school would have called home and said Bobby wasn't in school today. But let's say they didn't. They missed a day. The second day, the third day, the fourth day, the second week, the fifth week, that would have been a problem in my house. My father would have driven me to school and sat in the classroom and went with me from class to class all day long if he had to. Parents don't do that, Robert. That's a that's a whole different way of living life this many years later. It would be good. It would be wonderful. But I'm just wondering how to address the current situation. I watch. I just don't. I we we still didn't talk about what can be done about those children who are left playing games and not receiving any consciousness. We are talking about it right now. The point that we're making here Mm -hmm. is a lack of parental supervision. That's what that's what we're talking about. If your child does not go to school every day and that's okay, and they can go for years and not go to school, that's not on the child. That's on the parents. That's right. what we're talking right. about. Right. And, and, right. And then right. mine also, too, and, and now this is going to ruffle feathers, persons who, are, whether you're adopted, forced foster, you have an authority over a child. And this mantra about being afraid of their child is not going to like them or oh. not going to speak to them, you're the one that bought the video game. You're the one right. that is right. bought the cable in the house. So That's when right. you tell a child, put that game away, 
turn that TV off and they refuse to do so, it is your responsibility to take action to respond. I said, take this away. So that means you got to take it away. That means you got to take the TV away. You have to be the one to, as Robert's point, the education is just not sit in a book, okay, learn from this. Education is also the discipline of I have authority, I have I have been given charge over you because I brought you in this house, and so yeah. therefore you need to follow this construct. And if they're That's playing right. video games, take the video games away until, absolutely. until they right. get what you need. But we don't. Yeah. But there's just such a fear of, oh, my kids going to be taken away from me. Oh, they're going to run away. Oh, there's so many things that parents feel so hampered by, so they let the child do whatever they want to do because they're afraid of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. mother used to easily say, until you're 18, I am legally responsible for you. I remember the time I wanted to go skydiving at 16, and she was like, not until you pay in your own insurance. You know, and so it is so important. Again, that's a part for me, that's a part of the consciousness. It's a part of the consciousness for parents and people who are in the charge of children to take responsibility. You know, even though the, the young people who I have here in my home, even though they're not children per se, but you better be sure that I take charge when I see that there's something off and I feel responsible for it. I feel responsible in my consciousness as an individual who has lived this on this earth for a number of years and who has seen various different things and can impart wisdom and or advice to them. And we all yeah. need to start taking responsibility, whether it's teachers, whether it's parents, whether it's people. I saw a young kid the other day, a woman on her cell phone, and her child was, the woman had turned, and her baby was literally at the curb. And I'm talking a two-year-old baby, right, walking and at the curb. And the woman has turned the corner, and the baby is at the curb. And I stepped in front of the child and then said, Mom, where's your baby going? And it was a small thing. Yes, I thought, what the hell are you doing, blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, as an individual watching this situation, it was my responsibility to take charge. Not take charge, but to be charged over the innocence and the the position of this child, seeing that this child was in danger for a second, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. We're talking so, about you know, the... I think we all have to do. We're talking about the preschool to prison pipeline. And I think we can all agree that the two things, I'm keeping a list here. I would encourage my co-hosts and the listeners to do the same. I'm making a list here of the portals, the points of entry to the preschool to prison pipeline. I think two things that we've discussed so far are one, lack of education. Certainly can see that illustrated in Brother Ray Jasper's story. And two, lack of parental supervision. These are two entry points to the pipeline that will lead you to prison a lack of education at a young age and a lack of parental supervision will lead you into that pipeline. I do want to say that brother Ray stopped going to school at 11 years old. We talked about that. And when he was 15, he stole a bicycle. Now we all have crimes. We steal candy from the store and things like that. This is still on the same point of parental supervision. But if I did steal a bike at 15, I knew that there were some consequences in my household for that choice. Yes, I did grow up with my mother and father in the home. It does make a difference having the balance of male and female energy in the household. Yes, a mother 
single mother can take on both of those energies to the best of her ability. But this is just nature, brothers and sisters. There's a different command in the house when there's a man in the house. When I used to go to volunteer for uh, a children's hospital in Washington, I would go there and sit in the maternity ward and I would just rock the babies and hold the babies. And the reason why they wanted men to do it, these were crack babies that had been abandoned by their mothers. And the reason why they wanted men to do it is because the sound of a man's voice has a different effect on a child than the sound of a woman's voice. And most of the nurses there mm-hmm. were women. And so this is back in the 80s. So a man doing that is very different. It has a different effect on the voice. You can look at a toddler. And when a man enters the room with a different kind of tone in his voice, the baby looks completely different than when it's a woman. This is just the way nature. Yeah, different energy. It's a, exactly. The energy. It's a different energy. So I'm bringing up that to say that, yes, single mothers do the best they can, and they are valiant, many of them, at bringing both of those energies to bear when there is a lack of a male presence in the home. I would put number three on my list. Father absence is a entry point, is a portal to the prison pipeline. Father absence in the house. It makes you vulnerable, particularly as a young man, to the prison, the preschool to prison pipeline. Father absence. Very, very important. I knew there were consequences. Yes, there were consequences by my mother. I knew there were serious consequences by my father whenever I went off the beaten path. So I think that's a very important point to make when it comes to what are the risk factors that will lead one to the pipeline. Go ahead. And and families where there are two parents, it's not unusual for the mother to say, okay, okay. Just wait till daddy gets home. Exactly. Wait till your father gets exactly. home. Exactly. And uh, that that usually made them stop and, and take notice. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. And I'd like to point out, I think something that Maya had, had mentioned, and I just took it differently, or I'm rewording it on my, is the lack of constructive direction. You know, because when you sit a child yeah. in front of a game, yeah. you're not really giving them constructive direction. And Absolutely I think there's a lack not. of construction direction. Good. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to say it, Michelle. Lack of constructive direction. Yeah. Let me say on March 4th, 2014, just two weeks before he was executed, Brother Ray Jasper sent a second letter to the editors at Gawker.com, which they promptly published. And I want to read to you some highlights from that second letter. This was literally just weeks before I went to see him and weeks before he he died. He was executed. Here's what he says, Mr. Nolan, that was the name of the Gawker.com editor. Mr. Nolan, when I first responded to you, I didn't think that it would cause people to reach out to me and voice their opinions. I've never been on the Internet in my life. And I'm not fully aware of the social circles on the Internet. So it was a surprise to receive reactions so quickly. This is a brother who went into the penal institution. I refuse to call it a correctional institution for obvious reasons into the penal institution at age 18 and spent 15 years on death row writing that I have never been on the internet in my life. And I'm not fully aware of the social circles on the internet. He says, Osho once said that one person considered him like an angel and another person considered him like a devil. He didn't attempt to refute either perspective because he said that man does not judge based on the truth of who you are, but on the truth of who they are. Now, that's the truth right there, brothers and sisters. 
people aren't, aren't judging you based upon the truth of who you are. They're judging you based upon the truth of who they are. Very important. He goes on to say, I'll only address what's on my heart. Next month, the state of Texas has resolved to kill me like some kind of rabid dog. So indirectly, I guess my intention is to use this as some type of platform because this could be my final statement on earth. I think empathy is one of the most powerful words in this world that is expressed in all cultures. This is my underlying theme. I do not own a dictionary, so I can't give you the Oxford or Webster definition of the word. But in my words, empathy means putting the shoe on the other foot. He goes on to say, a man once said that revolution comes when you inform people of their rights. Martin Luther King said a revolution comes by social action and legal action working hand in hand. I'm not presenting any radical revolutionary view. The word revolution just means change. America changes as the laws change. He goes on to say, if a prisoner refuses to work and be a slave, they will do their time in isolation as punishment. You have thousands of people with a lot of prison time that have no choice but to make money for the government or live in isolation. The effects of prison isolation literally drive people crazy. Who can be isolated from human contact and not lose their mind? So what Brother Ray is saying here is that under the legalized slavery in this country, which is permitted, right. permitted if you're a criminal, a convicted criminal, if you refuse as a convicted criminal in a prison to be a slave, you will be isolated, put in what they call ag seg, isolation. Where you have no privileges. And, right. And, and what we should say is standardly, and people might not know this, but standardly when someone is put on death row, that is automatic isolation. So there is no moving up. So it goes from, for instance, you might be in general population, but when you're on death row, you are automatically in isolation. And sometimes that means only getting to go outside, if you get to go outside, for an hour a day. Mm. So people Mm. need to understand what that really means when it says that you are on death row. And sometimes you don't even get that. You know, it's important, I think, to really let people know what isolation means. And I think that that's more painful. That would be more painful than death itself. I think the the thing that keeps those the, the men or the women who are in isolation, the thing that keeps them going is that hope that somehow before that final day of judgment, of death, that someone will come to their aid and turn the turn the case around and they may be free but i think that um that isolation for me it would be that would be worse than just dying mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't be able to, to handle right. that the question it raises well, you know, is a question point. that has been discussed for years and years and it is a question that i would hope would continue to be discussed is how humane is it to isolate someone to that degree. And I would argue with you, my, my, it's not humane. It is inhumane to isolate someone, to, to deny someone the ability to see daylight. Understand that these people don't even see daylight. They see the fluorescent light in their cell 24 hours a day. In some of the facilities, they will dim that to a, to a blue light for the evenings in some. But others see a fluorescent yellow light 24 hours a day. Absolutely. 
absolutely in I, I think it goes to it goes to the mentality about when slaves were legal, the idea of slaves were property. Slaves were not looked at as humans. Slaves were not looked at as someone that, you know, that has feelings. It, it was basically to do as I feel. So when persons are when, when persons are incarcerated in prison, I think the mental construct is they are not human. They we do with them as they as we please to get whatever we want out of them. So there is a disconnect as far as okay, you are no longer human. You no longer have rights because if you think about it, when look at the persons that come out of jail, you know they still have this scarlet letter or they're not human. They don't have rights. They're even though they may have served their particular time or whatever. So it's this stain that we have to change our mentality of they may have been incarcerated for committing a crime, but it doesn't change the fact they are still living, breathing souls that still have the capacity to change and to be touched, and they need the same construct as someone who is outside the prison walls. On that note, I think you raise an excellent point. And on that note, just to piggyback on that a bit, this goes into the whole issue of the, for lack of a better word, criminalization of human beings. And more specifically, that all prisoners are not created alike. Brother Ray says in his letter here, I think prison sentences have gotten way out of hand. People are getting life sentences for aggravated crimes where no violence had occurred. Now, this is an issue that President Obama has been championing, trying to champion that there are the, our prisons are overcrowded of the two million people in prison now in the United States. Many, many, many of them have not committed violent crimes. So when you use the word prisoner or criminal, we our mind because of the current day society and what Maisha was talking about in terms of these young kids sitting down with these violent games, our minds tend yeah. to go to the worst of the worst of the worst criminals. Well, all criminals, people, prisoners are not like that. Some of them stole some candy from a store. Some of them are just drug addicts. Some of them are just mentally ill people who need to be in a psychiatric facility and not in a penal institution. So these same people, the same person who raped, murdered, stabbed, and, and Ray Jasper admittedly did a very heinous crime here. He, and he was on death row. So he's a bit of a different kind of case, as Michelle was pointing out. But the same person who raped a child is getting the same kind of inhumane treatment many times as somebody who was a crack addict and, and did and did yeah. no violent crimes. So I think it's important to understand, as Dante was pointing out, that not all prisoners are created alike. And so our sentencing guidelines that goes into mandatory minimums and all that. And we'll get into all that eventually. All of that has to be looked at as part of this system, this pipeline. This preschool to prison pipeline. So we could add, I'm going to add number four here, mandatory minimums. Okay. Sentencing. That is a entry point to the system, to the, to the pipeline. For example, all the drugs that I smoked when I was 15 years old, marijuana at that time, and all the buying of marijuana that I did, a white boy who was 15 and buying the same amount of marijuana as I was buying well, marijuana is not a good example. I would go to crack. Let's say I wasn't doing crack when I was 15, but let's just put it up to my adult life and my cocaine use. All the cocaine that I was buying as an adult in my neighborhood, and I happened to live in a good neighborhood at that time. And when I say good, I mean an upscale neighborhood. A white boy yeah. from my same neighborhood who got caught for buying the same amount of coke that I did would probably end up with maybe two years. Whereas me, a black boy in the hood. Or nothing. Okay, or nothing at all, which is probably more likely. I would get a mandatory minimum of 25 years. Okay, mine was crack. His was powder. 
I was I would get that's how disparate the sentences are. So I would say uh, mandatory minimums is another entry point into the prison preschool to prison pipeline sentencing under the broad category of sentencing, which leads to an overpopulation in prison of people who have committed nonviolent crimes. That's part of the system that needs to be tweaked. This is what Brother Ray says. Giving a first time felon a sentence beyond their lifespan is pure oppression. Multitudes of young people have been thrown away in this generation. Now, that's the truth right there, brothers and sisters. That's the truth. He says it's not that crime is the issue. Crime still goes on daily. This is Brother Ray Jasper writing, which was basically his not deathbed confession, but his last manifesto, if you will, to the world. It's not that crime is the issue. Crime still goes on daily. It's that the politics surrounding crime have changed and it has become a numbers game. Dollars and cents. Dollars and cents. And that is the truth. What does that mean, dollars and cents? Mm. That goes back to what we talked about, the prison industrial complex. Think of every industry Mm. surrounding a prison that makes money off the prisoners. The ankle bracelet that your family members are wearing because they're out. The company that makes those bracelets, they're making money. Now, if you're the company that makes the bracelets, do you want more people in prison or do you want less? Come on. Oh, wow. The the food service industry that makes the food, that sends the trays into the prison, they're making money. The telephone company, the MCIs, the Verizons, who set up the specialized prison telephone systems in the jail, they're making money. Yep. This is what it means. Every aspect. Exactly. Every aspect of prisons. And in a small town, everything. Exactly, my. Every single product surrounding the prison has become an industry that makes money off more people being in the prison system. Yeah. And Robert, to you, I was just about to say, and if you notice in that piece that you were talking about, you went to Huntsville. You you talked about Livingstone. All these small towns that you went to. You didn't go to Houston. Exactly. You didn't go to Dallas. Exactly. You didn't go to El Paso. You went to an obscure place where the Department of Transportation had to build roads. Exactly. To get you to the prison, <laughs> to this particular place. So, yes, they're trying. You know, now, granted, there is a push to to uh, to take the contracts away from the prison system. But there's a mindset, there's a, there's a psychological mindset that we have to change as a country, as a society, concerning how we look at each other to create these particular laws. If we're saying all, all men are created equal, but our words and our actions are not doing, mirroring those same things. So that's when we have to get to the constructs of why we're we creating these particular laws. And because on the onset, it's appearing to be a money or greedy aspect of it. And we're targeting specific persons, particularly minorities, to raise the amount of money and capital to be, quote, successful in, in, for businesses. Now, everything you said there is true. I'm going to make this comment, then I'm going to throw it over to Michelle to introduce Brother Shakuri, Shakuri Shar, who is rejoining us this week to continue this conversation on the preschool to prison pipeline. What you said, Dante, is true. And it sounds good what you just said. And I believe what you just said is true. We're about to elect a president in a few days here. And in this space, and I understand why, and this is just an observation, not an indictment. You know, my co-hosts are somewhat reluctant to engage (laughs) in political discussions here. And I totally get it. (laughs) 
I don't request it. Don't need it. It's fine. I'm just raising this for for purposes of this discussion. And I have varying views on voting, but I do believe in voting when it comes to what Dante just said. The question is, do you know where your local legislators stand on the issue that we're talking about? Do you know what their opinions are on the prison industrial complex? Do you know, are they supporting the industries in your local community that are profiting off brothers and sisters being in prison? Do you know that as a voter? Are you in a high informational voter? It's called in the polling industry, or are you a low information voter? A low information voter tends to vote on feelings. I don't like her. I don't like him. Okay, that's a low information mm-hmm. voter. Yeah. A high information yeah. voter knows the issues, knows the policies, and knows where the people stand on those yeah. issues, and they're voting their values and their yeah. issues. They're not just voting their feelings. Yeah. That's a high information yeah. voter. Okay, and they so you. Yes, they do, my. And so when you're targeting a high information voter, the material looks completely different that you're developing. It is much more substantial. When you're targeting a low informational voter, you don't have to put a lot of substance into your materials. You just have to try to uh, try to provoke an emotion, evoke an emotion. So I'm, I'm exactly just something to make them feel. It's like what preachers do on Sunday. Some of them, not all of them, just tickle your emotions and make you feel good. And that's that's the purpose yeah, of that. Yeah. So it's 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 yeah. really important to know where your local legislators stand on this issue on the prison industrial Absolutely. complex. Are they profiting and are they encouraging excessive profiting off the prison industry in your local community? You got to ask them. You got to write them letters and ask them. You got to call them. Then you got to look at those answers and see where you stand on that. And if you're not happy with the answers, you got to protest that. You've got to find a way to let your voice be heard. That is civil disobedience, as Henry David Thoreau talked about in the opening of our program today. That is civil disobedience. That is the peaceable revolution. And the first part of that is being informed your damn self. That's what Brother Ray is saying. Most of us don't even know. We don't even know. Michelle. We hear these sound bites. We vote our feelings. Exactly. We vote our feelings. Michelle, respecting Brother Shakuri's time, he's here. I'm going to turn it over to you now to reintroduce him to our conversation, and then we'll continue building on what we're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much. In this prison to pipeline, or I'm sorry, cradle to um, prison pipeline conversation that we're having, we wanted to. I wanted to bring someone in who really is very, very new, very informed on this space, and very new to the transition back into what we might call normal space of living in America. This is Shakuri Shah. He is the founder and executive director of a what I think is going to be an amazing social justice media series or organization called From Bars to Beyond. It is a organization that is newly, it's a a newly minted, and the objective is to bridge the re-entry, and the aim is to motivate, support, and guide at-risk youth to put their minds into another place to develop aspirations and pursue their goals. Shakri Shar is recently released 15 or 18 months ago after being in jail for over 23 years. And so without further ado, you were here last week and made such an impact. We wanted to have you back here again. So Shakri, hello. I'm, I'm great. I can't complain. 
Good, good, good. I'm glad we were able to, you know, get you and whatnot. You and I were having some kind of off, 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 off market chats, and that had me a little bit like, oh, a little concerned and stuff. But you're here, so I'm very, very glad. I wanted to start off because last week we got into a really, absolutely amazing conversation, and we actually reached out or had an audience member call in and really talk about some of the struggles that she was having, some of the concerns. The conversation began really when she started. She was really almost in tears about talking about how she could redirect and speak to her son. So we got really in-depth in that conversation. But one of the things we didn't do is we didn't really talk about what you and your organization are doing. So I want to, you know, open up a little bit and just be able to, for you to tell us about what is From Bars to Beyond and, you know, why? Why was this your first motivation when you, when you, you know, got out? Okay, great. Well, thanks. Uh, for having me on. Good morning, everyone. From Bars to Beyond was an idea that actually started before I came home. The usual TV programming that occurs behind the wall tends to involve like a lot of these really trashy TV reality shows. You know, there was always, you know, the drama and conflict and, and, and catfighting that you would constantly see. You know, I always used to run. I said, you know, why... Are there no inspirational shows on? You know, why were there so very few shows that, you know, I could sit down and watch and have as a source of motivation? And um, a thought came to mind that said, you know what, it would be really cool if they had, you know, a reality show that showed people who came home from these prison institutions and showed them succeeding in pursuing their aspirations or ambitions toward a career or a program or a business pursuit. There just weren't anything like that out there. So that, that's where the idea sprouted from. Today, SB2B is, you know, it's a really unique virtual media startup that spotlights talented young people who, despite a criminal justice past, to create more productive futures. Right. So uh, I had partnered with a really wonderful guy who is um, principal owner of Artists in New York Productions. So he volunteered to just go around and film these interviews with me of people who were formerly incarcerated but, you know, had made great strides in, uh, you know, the things that they've been doing in the community, empowering themselves and empowering people around them. So most recently, we decided that we wanted to involve more young people, people who were at risk because of the, you know, the conditions that they grew up under, felt like they had very little choice in terms of uh, the direction that they were headed. Uh, and I think we, we spoke about that a little bit about this last week, where, you know, a lot of young people feel that the streets are the only place they can go to for empowerment. Right. Right. You know, they, exactly. they, they don't. They don't really feel empowered by, you know, what they may see in their history books in class. Some of the things that they see going on at, going on at home. Let me back up a little bit because I want to explain and reintroduce you just a little bit of your story because of some of the stories that we've already talked about. And so, so everyone will understand, Shakuri in was incarcerated at the age of 18 
and you were convicted under the felony murder rule and actually spent 23 years in jail. And so he's just recently 18 months out from, I, I like your term, behind the wall. And he has now transitioned that. Now, first of all, while you were behind the wall, you earned two Bachelor of Science degrees and a master's degree. And so you really put yourself and put your spirit to good use. And one of the things that you said last week, which I thought was amazing, and I'm paraphrasing it, but you talked about recognizing that you did not want to be with the others and recognizing. And so can you talk about, just reiterate that for us. Brother Shakuri, before you do that, I, yes. I, I, want, I definitely mm-hmm. want to hear that. I want to encourage our listeners to go and listen to last week. I don't want to spend a lot of time treading on what we talked about last week. I want to break some new ground here today. Exactly. Right. So after you do that, right. Brother Shakuri, I want to follow up with you on some very specific things that I want to drill down with you on. But but please proceed. Yeah, sure. Sounds good. Okay, so I came to a realization that one of the reasons I was sitting in this six by eight foot cell was my mentality to be a follower. Right? You know, I grew up as a kid, pretty much an introvert, wasn't really popular. And I felt like one of the things that could give me the type of respect out in the world that I lived in was by following what was quote unquote popular with the kids in school or out in the street. Mm-hmm. You know, that was something that was very dangerous because it didn't allow me to think critically about the choices that I was making. Right. And so I wanted to undo that, you know, after realizing that, you know what, being a follower doesn't always lead you to a path that is in your best Mm self-interest. And I wanted to start being an independent thinker. You know, even though I found myself uh, going against the grain many times, I felt much better about myself as an individual because there were instances where I was absolutely right in the things that I was pursuing despite what others might say to the contrary. Mm -hmm. And so college programming was one of those things that I decided to do, you know, despite, you know, not having the encouragement to do that from my peers. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Brother Shakuri, we were talking before you came on about specifically about the preschool to prison pipeline. And I was sharing the story of a brother who went to prison at 18, right around the time that you did in your life. Right. Can you just it's walk really up? Powerful. Yeah. Can, thank you, brother. Can you walk us through some of the, because I really want to drill down on the factors leading these brothers and sisters into the prison at such an early point in life. So when you look back over your first 18 years, can you just walk us through what you see as some of the entry points that led you into the prison? We talked about lack of education, lack of parental supervision, father absence, some of the sentencing that occurs in some of these nonviolent crimes. But from your perspective, now that you have the vantage point of looking back, walk us through some of the things that led you into that pipeline. That's a really great question. And uh, that's something that I've given a lot of thought to um, over a period of years of my incarceration. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I just had to answer the question, how did I end up here? Mm-hmm. And after mulling over it for quite a bit of time, you know, and through self-introspection, uh, what I realized was that, like most other teens, uh, I was going through an identity crisis. Mm-hmm. 
know, I, I, I wanted, I knew I wanted to be someone, right? But who should that person be, and how do you become that person? With a very narrow window of, you know, what those opportunities could be, almost veered toward the street culture. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like I had in a conversation with Michelle, it, it really came down to where would I find a source of self-empowerment? And here's the difference between, you know, someone like me who grew up in a single-parent home in, you know, a not-too-affluent neighborhood and the kid who, you know, has those resources at his disposal. You know, he has a well-to-do two-parent household, you know, and he probably has the quote-unquote privilege of having white skin. Right. And so the difference is that for him or her, they can rely on the stakes that they have in this country. So when people look at, you know, how their ancestry was able to make, you know, these great accomplishments and how they've established businesses and institutions, that is a very powerful source of pride. Mm-hmm. And it tells that young person, I have a stakehold in this country, in this community. Mm-hmm. And when I'm ready, I can follow in those footsteps. That's right. They have, they have a piece of the pie that they think, that they believe is theirs and is a source of confidence for them. Now, when you come to my neighborhood in Southside, Jamaica, Queens, and, you know, we're looking for those sources of empowerment. They're not there. You know, we don't look, we can't see ourselves in the building and ownership of the communities around us. And then the problem on top of that is that when we look at our own households, we don't see too many entrepreneurs who are really making strides and establishing businesses or who are professors or doctors or lawyers and judges. And so there's a lack of modeling available, you know, in our communities that can give us that sense of empowerment, that here are the people who um, look like me, who know me, who understand our community, and they have had a historical pattern of success. So when when you don't find that at home, you don't find it at school, you don't find it on TV or the media, uh, you tend to gravitate towards the street where you see, you know, the guys who they're driving the Mercedes-Benz, they have the flashy gold, they tend to have the young ladies gravitating towards them. And as a young kid, you want that because that's what commands respect and admiration mm-hmm. and when you're a young kid and you, you don't see where else you can you can get that you can build that you start to gravitate towards what these quote-unquote popular kids are doing in the street okay now brother shakuri because you're you're bringing us to a very poignant place and it's a universal place for yeah. a lot of people. A lot of a lot of brothers and sisters, young brothers and sisters are asking the questions. You you pose two powerful questions here. How do I become who I want to become and where would I find a source of self-empowerment? So you're gravitating as a young a young man to the street culture. 
And I would say that at that point, you're sort of in the pipeline. You're in the preschool to prison pipeline. You're, you're, you're in there, you know, because of maybe some of the things that maybe some of the things that you're doing, whether they be illegal activities or just running with this particular crowd, you're sort of in the pipeline. If you see that, if you agree with that, that you're in the pipeline, is there an awareness at some point that, oh shit, I'm in, I'm on a path that could lead me somewhere that I don't want to be. At what point do you perceive that I'm in this system? I'm headed toward an end that I don't desire. Well, you don't see it. That's, that's why you're there. You don't see it. You know, I, I always used to ask myself, had I known or understood certain dynamics of how this thing works, mm-hmm. how this thing operates, I would have likely thought very differently. But it's like when you're inside the box, you don't really see the overall structure of the box itself from an outside perspective. Okay, let me push you, brother. um, Let me push you in love on that. Push you in love on that. You don't see people going to jail around you when you're in the street culture? You don't see the end that some of these brothers are coming to when you're inside the culture? You do. But for some reason, I think at that young age, your mind is is not processing that. It's going to happen to me. <laughs> right, right. It's not processing that. There's, there's this, this mechanism that is a- operation here that's telling you I can get away with it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I have this ability to do as I please because I can get away with it. I'm different. And I'm so, special. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and it doesn't even have to go through any rationalization or through, you know, any, any logical justification for those thoughts. It's just, you know, the thought that opens the door. And mm-hmm. without, you know, much deliberation, you constantly walk through it. And it's right. because there is such an attraction to what's on the other side or what you perceive to be on the other side. I'm with you. Mm. So when you, when, when, the, and you brought up one, one of the things that I've been thinking about all week that you said last week, which was powerful to that sister, you said you have to understand the culture that is attracting your children. And that's really what you're speaking of that's right now, right, right. the street culture. Okay. So at that same time, right. and we roll it back in your own life. And when you ask the question, where do I go to find a source of self-empowerment? Can you think back now on any brothers and particularly any older men that you saw from a distance that were not a part of the street culture that you wanted to be like, whether it was a teacher or a bus driver or your uncle or a cousin or anybody? Do you, did you see any kind of positive man around that you, looking back now at 42, 43, however old you are, where you're saying, man, if I could have just got closer to that brother, maybe he could have helped me cut a path to become who I wanted to become. Right. And that is on point. And so the problem for me when my teenage years is that I didn't really have that person. And I think this is why mentorships are so critical, mm-hmm. particularly for young boys between the ages of 14 and 21. Because this is the age where you're transitioning from a child into early adulthood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, studies have shown that uh, people at this age tend to make very poor decisions. Mm -hmm. And so 
particularly for boys, you need the guidance of someone who you respect, who you can connect mm-hmm. with, whose words will resonate with you um, when you're having a conversation with them. Exactly. And I didn't, I didn't really have that. I grew up in a household that was primarily women. Mm-hmm. So you know, my mom, my sisters, my aunt, my grandmother. And I had an uncle that was, you know, in and out, but mostly at a remote distance. Right. And, you know, some of the, some of the reflections that I uh, had, you know, during my incarceration led me to that exact point. You know, what if I did, you know, have someone who was older, much more experienced, and was willing to say, here, let me show you what this path looks like mm-hmm. when you actually get to the other side of it. And you know what, brother? And um, so you know what, brother Shakuri? Yeah. The ironic thing is, is that most brothers find that man in prison. They find the brother it's in so prison. Wow, that's, that's that's right. that is that is so true. That is so true. That's right. That's right. And it's I think, Robert, to your point, it's also that's the travesty that we need to start changing. You know, it's beautiful because I am sure. Corey, you wouldn't be here if you didn't have some impetus, not only yourself, but some people in prison who said, let, here, let me show you this way. Let me direct you this way. What about this? What about that? That person. But we have got to, as a society, and especially in our community, we've got to start that earlier brother shakuri you know, l- oh, let's just, okay because because i think we're 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 at a very special place here piggybacking on michelle's point okay so the street is pulling you at 14 15 16 totally understand that what was it about the life of going to school every day studying the books taking the sat getting into college what was it about that path that didn't attract you that didn't hold your attention because you got there in prison. You got your degrees and all that. So you got on it. But when you were quote unquote free, what was it about that path that just didn't hold any allure to you? The straight and narrow, as they say. There was no perceived empowerment at the end of it. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't make that connection to the point where that became my priority. So in other words, the perceived empowerment that was projecting from the street was more powerful than that that was projected from a classroom. Mm-hmm. It was more immediate. And don't you think... You got some gratification in the short term. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Right, exactly. Exactly. Right. exactly. That's the word I just typed, immediate. And I think that that is a big issue in how we're going to have to... How, how we need to teach our children to in their gratification. And it's going to be, because ultimately mm-hmm. what you're mm-hmm. saying, what I'm hearing you say, it actually, that means that this situation can get worse because we live in a society now where people want to be immediately gratified. And so now we don't have any patience for extending our gratification. And so I think it's extremely important to do that. So how would you... Suggest and you know piggybacking off of what you're saying, Robert. How how do you suggest a person or a young person between the ages of 14, 21? How do they start to think about extending that gratification? What do parents need to direct them towards, and/or how does that person start doing that? I think they need to. I mean, there's there's a number of things, but uh, one that comes to mind is widening 
the world perspective that you know these young kids have. For example, you know my my world didn't really surpass you know the fifteen blocks right. in the community I lived in. Right, that's right, brother. Um, that's all I knew. You know, yeah. some kids their their whole world is Bedside Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. They don't know anything beyond that. Right. So, can possibly trigger a new level of thinking is being exposed to much more of the world to kind of get a glimpse into how society operates beyond, you know, your local community. And this, this kind of gives the view of what else is out there, what opportunities are out there, how are other people outside of your local circle living? You know, mm-hmm. how are they progressing or, you know, what are their challenges and success points? Mm-hmm. That's a key point. So when you're, when you're in that very narrow world, you know, that just revolves around your 15-block radius, you know, that's, that's all you know. So there's, there's not much there to inspire you other than what you're used to. And I think it just, it just kind of like it's a catalyst for your imagination to kind of move beyond you know, what, you, what you're what you used to in your community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brother Shakur, you know, you talk about the funny. South Side, Jamaica, Queens. I have a lot of family right there on a 105th and yep. 171st Street. You know, a lot of my family is it's there. Too. Yeah. Down I, the street. <laughs> yeah. I understand yeah, yeah. some of what you speak, Brother. Brother Shakur, we've been talking about yeah. the 13th Amendment and how it is legal in this country to enslave people if they are convicted of a crime. We've been talking about that all morning. And so I really want to ask you the straight ahead question in your 23 years of being behind the wall, as you put it. I love that expression. Did you at any point feel, brother, like a slave in this country? Oh, wow. Yeah, I I, I just did not realize that until this experience, that was really how a lot of people, particularly through these institutions, perceived me. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it, I, I think it's the closest thing you can get to, quote-unquote, modern-day slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't need to tell you how nightmarish the prison experience can be. But it's, you know, I mean, anything that you could think of is almost has happened behind these prison institutions. I'll give you a quick anecdote. Uh, I was in an in a, uh, institution that was primarily for adolescents. Mm-hmm. And on one side of the prison was the disciplinary unit. So one time I found myself in the disciplinary unit, and here was a place where the correctional staff or the guards were 99% white. Mm -hmm. And they had this game that they played amongst themselves with these young kids. And because they knew that these kids were divided into these like rival gangs and groups that had conflict with one another, what they would do, because, you know, on, in, in, when you're in a disciplinary unit, you are in your cell for 23 hours a day. And then you get that one-hour recreation where they let you out and put you into these little cages. So for one hour a day, they, you know, they march you into these cages knowing very well that if you put two people from different and rival gang groups that 
have conflict with each other, something's going to happen. And what the, what these officers would do was they would place bets amongst themselves on what the number of stitches one of these kids would need after the other cuts his face open with a razor. Almost like a modern-day cockfight. That's yeah. what it was. So, so when I realized that this was happening, I was like, this is not fiction. This is not something I read in a book about, you know, how, you know, the system treated African-Americans mm-hmm. 250 years ago. It's happening right in front of my face. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I would, literally, I would see them laugh at the outcome. Mm-hmm. This was such a, not only heartbreaking, but a, really a wretched eye-opener into how, how racism can be such a destructive force, particularly in a place where no one is looking over their shoulder. Mm-hmm. And when you dig into some of the backgrounds of some of these correctional officers, in some cases, you know, these aren't the the smartest people. These aren't the most intelligent people. These aren't the most enlightened people. The vibration is so low on some of these individuals. And some of these guys are are the cast outs from school and the class nerds and stuff. And they got a little bit of power now. And they just take mm-hmm. that to a whole different level. Here's what I want to ask you. My, a yeah. new level. My last question for you, brother. And you kind of answered it, but I just kind of want to hear your experience. Certainly under those conditions, there had to be many moments where you just go, oh, shit, I am property. I am somebody's property. Do you did you ever get to a place or I should say how many times did you get to a place where you just didn't even really feel like a human being? Yeah, there's, there's been a few instances of that. But I, I had to fight that off because mm-hmm. the reality is that it's the other side's perspective that I'm property, not mine. Right. And I had to remind myself that. I had to remind myself that these backward-thinking people don't realize how dehumanizing their actions are, not just to me, but to themselves. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to not fall into you know, depression or a state of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult, especially when, for example, you were talking about the the box where, you know, you, you have individuals who are locked down and barely see daylight because they may not even have a window in their cell. Exactly. I've had conversations with people in those situations that were there for years. Mm-hmm. Years. A guy, seven years in the box. You know, how do you hold on to your mm. sense of humanity, of being a human being? Right. When you're treated as if, you know, you're an animal in a cage that's only there to be fed and treated as an exhibit, as if you were to go to a zoo or a museum. Right. And so it's it's really difficult for a person not to fall in that realm of desperation and hopelessness. Mm -hmm. You know, my saving grace was the constant reminder that these people have a backward sense of thinking that they don't realize what they're doing. Right, exactly. Amazing. May I just say something before we go? Because I didn't get to uh, participate in last week's 
show, but Brother Shakur, this is my Maisha, and I just want to say I have the utmost respect for you and how you've handled your situation mm-hmm. and what you're doing now, and big props and love mm-hmm. to you. you so my, my, my husband has owned a company for the past 25 years that uh, has hired people of color who've been incarcerated and have difficult times finding work. And I've spoken with many of them, and I've heard many, many stories. So this is something that I'm very much familiar with, and I've also had family members who've been incarcerated and You've just done an amazing job with your life. You, you've taken your spirit and just mm-hmm. did, did, as evolved. You've done the most. Yeah, and evolved, uh, yeah. much, much, much respect to you. Thank you and, so much. And, I appreciate those words. They mean a lot. And thank, my, you. thank you. Because yes, um, one of the things pleasure. I was just thinking throughout the conversations that we've been having, and all of the really poignant um, questions that Robert has asked. Shakuri, your brilliance is your awareness, and that is something that I think that I hope people who are listening, I hope parents, fathers, teachers who are listening, that they understand that it is the awareness that we need to bring forth for our young people, you know, awareness in, as we've talked about these, the path to prison, awareness, self-awareness, all of that, and I think it's really, really People who have concerns about how our young people are not uh, ending up in a path that's productive or that may be full of negative consequences is to start something on their own, uh, you know, for their local community. And um, I think that's, that's really important because when you have you know, elders in the community that are willing to come together and build a space for younger people to have mentorships or to have art programs and ways that they can productively express themselves, that's a huge step forward. Absolutely. And, I mean, there's a number of different resources that you can tap into to see how that can happen, to see how you can model and structure a a program for youth, particularly at-risk youth. And I appreciate your time here today. I, I appreciate do. you. Yeah, brother, I appreciate you coming and sharing your story with us, and I appreciate you being open about some of the challenges that you've gone through in your life. Mm-hmm. And certainly it's not every day that we get a chance so that I get a chance to talk to a brother who has been behind the wall as long as you have. And right. as we move away from this space today and leave this conversation, what is it that you want to say to the 18-year-old who is in the street culture that we've been talking about here today, who is in the pipeline and on their way to prison, if you sort of pass them on the street corner, if they get a chance to hear just this last part of our conversation, what is the specific message to that brother that you think might reach some level that no other person or word or phrase or or message has been able to reach? What would you say to that, brother? Don't think that you have it all together. I think uh, when I reflect back on my own experience and mindset at that age, you know, one of the blinders for me was thinking that, you know, I had it all together, that, Mm -hmm. you know, certain things wouldn't fall on my lap. So to the other 18-year-olds out there, particularly in today's time, you know, you have to have the courage to say, I don't know everything. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know it all. I have issues that I probably don't even see. If you were to ask yourself, uh, even at that age, um, would you take advice from a six-year-old? Most of us would say no, because a six-year-old doesn't have the experience or the judgment that I, as a 18-year-old, can understand and, and implement. So when you think about needing someone who is who has more experience, who may be in their let's make twenties, think of it in that sense. You know, here's a person who is older than me and has much more experience and is doing something for themselves. I want to be able to tap into what their wisdom is. Mm-hmm. Because obviously at my age I don't have that experience yet. And, but you have to have that self-courage to do that. You have to be able to deny that voice in your mind that says, I don't need anyone else's advice or input. I got this. Mm-hmm. I can do me. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to shut that voice off and say, I need someone who can mentor me and show me certain things that I can't see yet at this stage in life. Mm-hmm. Mm, I love that. Yeah. One of the things that you said this week that really is sticking with me, you just kind of elaborated on it. And that's the whole idea of when you were in your teens and you developed this follow followers mentality. And I think that's a really key point, the followers mentality. And I think that followers mentality, that kind of herd mentality, I'm just going to run with the crowd this way is a key crossroads that traps up a lot of brothers and, and sisters, particularly brothers I'm focusing on here today. So I really think it's important for young brothers and sisters and even some grown ass men <laughs> to check ourselves. Mm-hmm. Or, you know what I'm saying? Now, do I have a follower's mentality? Yeah. Am I a follower or a leader? Now everybody can't be leaders, but uh, if, if you do identify yeah. as a follower, then you need to really look closely at who you're following and where are they exactly. leading you? Okay. Because some of the people, right. young brothers and sisters that you're following in your teens are leading you right along this pipeline into the prisons that we're talking about. All right, brother. Thank you so much for your time today. We'll see you the next time. Whenever that is, we'll be here if you'll be here. So thank you again. Thank you so much. I appreciate being on. Um, it's an honor and pleasure. All right, brother. Thank you again, Grace. So appreciative. All right. All right. I appreciate both of you. I'm going to take, well, I don't think I'm going to take any more breaks because we're kind of over time here. I do want to do what we didn't do last week. I'm very grateful. For, let me just take a moment and say I'm very grateful to you, Michelle, for bringing Brother Shakuri into the space. I'm very grateful for Brother Shakuri. I see things. I feel things in my life. It's a gift that I've been given, and I see the possibilities with the brother. I can feel him. I can see it. I can tell by the way that he expresses himself that there are some gifts there that are blooming and blossoming, and I would love to associate myself with that unfolding and that evolution. So I feel very privileged to be able to share the brother's story with our listeners today. And I feel grateful to be able to move forward and share even greater parts of what he's doing and the impact that's going to have on a lot of people. So the highest blessings to the brother and thank you, Michelle, for bringing him into the space. And I'm going to quickly move to brother Dante for the word of the week, which we didn't get in last week. I want to get it in now so that our listeners can be edified from, from what you have to say, Dante conversation that we've been having, the preschool to prison pipeline, the word kind of really resonates that I had, and it's actually, this is a word that Michelle loves, this concept of, and <laughs> the word is village. 
<laughs> a small community or group of houses in a rural area or the inhabitants of a, such a community or a collective. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this thing, preschool to prison. I want you to understand this familiar concept or quote to put in perspective of all we've been saying. It takes a village to raise a child. A village is a supportive environment which, along with parents and families, help develop children to healthy and productive men and women to make a positive contribution to society. There are several characteristics of a village that provide nurturing environment, and this is a, a short list of some very expansive things. A community of consciousness of feeling, a role of neighborhood, joint family, faith and religion, simplicity or simple life, a small size, a definite locality, and a predominance of primary relations. You see, growing up, I had several different villages in my own life that molded me. Mm -hmm. uh, living in the Dunbar community of Fort Myers, Florida, my mother and father's side of the family was very well known. On my mother's side, my grandmother was the insurance lady for the community, and my grandfather owned a service station and a supermarket. Mm -hmm. On my father's side, my grandmother worked in the school cafeteria that fed all the kids, mm -hmm. and my grandfather worked at a tire shop where most of the community had their tires serviced. So it was safe to say, depending on what side of town I was on, somebody knew me. Aren't you Effie's grandson? <laughs> I know your granddaddy Horace. I know your uh, grandma Jessie makes a mean pound cake. So if I was doing something I had no business doing, they would chastise me and then tell my grandparents. Mm -hmm. So then I would get in trouble for the act that I did and for the fact that Miss Bertha had to tell on me quote, embarrassing the family. So this type of village allowed kids to have all eyes on their mentality to make sure they stayed out of trouble. Mm -hmm. Now, when I began traveling with my dad all over the world in the military, my village changed, but the characteristics still remained the same. The military wives who knew my parents on the military basis would keep a watchful eye on me as I was playing with their children. So when I got out of line, they quickly checked me, and they told my mama, so, you know, the walk home was very slow. <laughs> so you got the barbershop, Sunday school teacher, the babysitter, the wino, the nosy neighbor. These different voices of influence helped reinforce what was being taught in my home or in my area. The village watched over you and helped lead you to the collection of paths that you needed to have. Mm -hmm. Now, over the past several decades, especially in the African-American community, our villages have been deteriorating. The sense of community has been lost. No structure, no order, or direction is being given to our youth. And as a result of this void, persons or youth are left to their own devices, which has led to crime, which has called law enforcement to come in and fill the vacuum. Mm -hmm. Violent conflicts with police result in arrest, death, mistrust, and shattered lives. And this vicious cycle now creates a pipeline for where the youth are more likely to go to prison than they are to go to college. Mm -hmm. So then now we're asking ourselves this question, how do we close this pipeline? How do we start rebuilding our own villages? Now, there's no silver bullet for this answer, but I want to offer a few suggestions. Number one, we start caring for each other again. Stop being so selfish and self-centered. We have to start reinforcing discipline at the beginning of the development of children's lives and not be defensive of, about allowing the village to issue correction to our children. When we are beginning to nurture the village mentality again, we will begin to reinstill core values of empowerment, discipline, 
determination, trust, and love within our children and then also in ourselves. Love is the greatest foundation that a village can have for each other and for our youth. Love of self, love of each other, and love for God. And that's my word of the week. Amen, brother. Start, Ooh, brilliant. Start caring Amen. for each other again. I think that's really, really key. It is not lost on me that you use the phrase, it takes a village, and that is associated with Hillary Clinton. <laughs> that does not go uh, unnoticed. <laughs> I, I, I didn't even think about that. Well, yeah. I, I it's the first thing I thought about. It's the first thing I thought about. I didn't put that in mind. Mm-hmm. Well, brothers and sisters, before we go today, I, I do want to say this. In just a few days, we will be voting for our next president of these United States. And it looks like we are about to elect the first woman to ever hold the highest office in our land. And I have been thinking a lot about the night Barack Obama was elected president. And I remember sitting in front of the television, weeping, a grown ass man weeping. It was a powerful moment in my life as a black man, it was a life changing moment for black people. And it was a transformative moment for the entire country as well. The United States of America, like any country on this planet, like the planet itself, actually the United States of America is a living, breathing, conscious, energetic being. And the United States of America is evolving. It's evolving. I am not a Hillary Clinton supporter. Anybody who knows me knows that. I did not vote for her. I did not vote for her husband. For a great many reasons that I will not go into in this moment, I do not believe in Hillary Clinton. And I would be very happy to see some other woman become the first woman president of the United States. But brothers and sisters, some other woman is not going to become the first president of the United States. Hillary Rodham Clinton is likely to become the first woman president of the United States. And as a man who was born and raised in this country, as a man who whose ancestors tilled the soil and picked the cotton and who were beaten and bloodied and bruised and whipped and demeaned and dismissed and disrespected and diminished throughout the entire history of this country. And even to this day, as we've been discussing this morning, as an American, I do believe in what this country could become. I believe in the promise of this country. And as such, I do support the office of the president of the United States, the office. I respect it. Even if, and especially when I would rather see someone else occupying that space, I support the office of the president of the United States. And I do understand this one true thing to all things. There is a season to all things. There is a season and wisdom tells me this is a necessary moment for the United States of America. It is a necessary moment for white women, for all women and girls in this country, 
and throughout the world. The election of a woman to the office of president of these United States of America is a powerful symbol that is a necessary moment in the evolution of this country. America is evolving. America is evolving. And I am reading the energy. I understand the higher purpose of this moment. And I know that on election night, there will be many people, white women, millions of women all over the world, women of color, young girls in developing countries and a multitude of oppressed women from uncivilized nations. All of those women and their evolved male counterparts, all of those women will be watching and many of them will be weeping just as I wept watching Barack Obama become the first black man to become president of our country. This brothers and sisters is a necessary moment. I get that. I see that. I feel that I understand what I'm looking at and I'm choosing to witness this moment with a clarity that comes from a higher spiritual perspective. This is a necessary moment to all things. There is a season. There is a time to congratulate and there is a time to critique. And for at least the next four years, with all the passion and purpose I have inside of me, I can promise you that I will at the appropriate times, I will do both. I will congratulate and I will critique. And those two, my brothers and sisters are necessary moments. That's going to do it for us today. I want to thank my co-hosts, Ms. Michelle Wilson and Ms. Mai Maisha Rashad and Mr. Dante Bonner. Thank our special guest, Brother Shakuri Shar. Really appreciate you. Our conversation continues on Facebook and YouTube and RobertWesleyBranch.com. Until next time, we'll be back next week. We're talking about toxic masculinity next week, also known as hypermasculinity. Toxic masculinity. Brother Jamel Smith will be here talking about toxic masculinity as a special guest on our show and a special guest that Dante is bringing in. Looking forward to that. We'll see you then. Until then, I'm Robert Wesley Branch. Be well, be encouraged, and be inspired every single day of your life. Keep it conscious and stay woke. Bye. That's been breaking our foundation About four or five weeks or so Seems like the love's been escaping Through the panes of our windows Yeah, now I'm questioning If these walls around us Can't keep up a happy home Yeah, but I'm a handyman And my plan is to try to fix it Before I let it go Can you feel I want to heal, want to build Want to fix what's broken for this house come tumbling down, girl, our love's in danger. Can you feel? I wanna heal, wanna build, wanna fix what's probate. It can only make us stronger, babe, if we don't let it break us. Found a leak in the roof and it seemed like it came from a thunderstorm. Now it's dripping from the ceiling and girl, it's messing up our floorboards. If we don't fix what we can, we should plan to be sleeping on the front porch. 
But I'm a handyman and my plan is to try to fix it before I let it go. Can you feel? I want to heal, want to build, yeah. fix what's broke, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this house come tumbling down, girl, our love's in danger. Can you feel? I want to heal, want to build, want to fix what's broke, baby. It can only make us stronger, babe, if we don't let it break us. I won't let another day go by where we don't try. We can't ignore these problems in our house. Hey, hey, hey. If you think it's worth fixing, babe, then I really want to fix it, baby. What's broke, baby? You feel what I feel. Well, this house baby. come tumbling down. Girl, I love well, in danger. Can you feel? I wanna heal, wanna build, wanna fix what's broke, baby. It can only make us stronger, babe. If we don't let it break us. Can you feel? I wanna heal, wanna build, wanna fix what's broke, baby. Well, this house come tumbling down. Girl, I love. Can you feel? I wanna heal, wanna build, wanna fix what's broke, babe. It can only make us stronger, babe. If we don't let it break us. The Robert Wesley Branch Show, a roundtable of wisdom where people from all across the planet, from all walks of life, and from all religious and sacred traditions convene for spiritual conversation. This show is produced by Robert Wesley Branch Inspired Media. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.